0: It's definitely changing. I think the dynamic, of the way software gets built, the speed at which it can get built. There are a lot of amazing tools. I mean, GitHub obviously is, is one. Uh, you know, in the Microsoft ecosystem, GitHub Copilot has been transformative. I think for developers, we've heard that from them directly. Um, and I think that's going only going to continue in the way software both is gets built and as also like the notion of what software is might potentially change as well.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution Show brought to you by Sasto. The conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thumer, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. All right, welcome to the SaaS Revolution show. I am your host, Alex Thumer, CEO founder of SaaStock. Uh, delighted to be joined today on the podcast, uh, by Peter Berg, who is the managing partner at M12. Welcome Peter. How are you doing?
0: I'm uh, doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah. Great to have you on the podcast. Where are you dialing in from Peter?
0: Uh, I'm dialing in from, uh, my home office in Marin. Uh, we're primarily based out of San Francisco though. That's our primary, uh, office for M12.
1: Very cool. Never been, uh, to Mar- Marin uh, light the bikes. Yeah.
0: Yes. In fact, uh, I believe mountain biking was
1: invented here. Uh, okay. Are you a mountain biker yourself?
0: Uh, you know, once I moved here, I felt, I felt it was obligatory that I become a mountain biker. So I was a roadie for most of my life, a uh, road cyclist, but I've, I've adopted uh, mountain biking. So yes, I'm still a novice, but yeah, I enjoy it.
1: Lucky you clarified the roadie uh, uh, as a cyclist, because I was thinking that you were a roadie for bands there, which is also absolutely fine
0: that would be a much more interesting background i wish i could, i had stories to tell in that in that uh, vein but no uh, a <laughs> road cyclist
1: no worries well let, let, let's we also always start to you know try and get to know our guests a little bit better um so let, let's start with that you know who is peter Berg?
0: uh yeah that 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 could go in a bunch of different directions it's kind of a philosophical question i mean aside from a cyclist uh i'm also you know a father and uh, a vc obviously i think that's what we're ta- why we're here but um i just i i think I'm someone who likes, uh, who's always been curious and, and likes to exist at the intersection of different uh, domains. So I think that's, if anything, like that's kind of defined a lot of my both personal and professional uh, career trajectory.
1: Very cool. Very cool. How did you end up in in venture? Were you always in VC? I, I think you weren't, right?
0: No. In fact, the majority of my career has actually been spent on the operating side or building. Um, uh, in fact, uh, I'm now adding more years in the venture side, but um, most of it has been uh, building and operating. Um, you know, I think if you ask VCs how to break into VC, you'll probably get as many answers as there are venture capitalists because uh, there's no like cookie-cutter uh, career path. And in fact, for me, that was also true. It was kind of a little bit by accident, frankly. Um, I was actually – I had joined Visa. I had done a series of startups and then, again, somewhat by happenstance and somewhat accidentally found myself at Visa doing product strategy. Um, and I had come mostly from the startup and technology world. Uh, and at the time, this was you know, 2011, 2012, um, Visa was just kind of waking up to uh, having a different relationship with a lot of the tech companies, many of whom are in their backyard. Visa's headquartered kind of in, in San Francisco. And so they had worked with technology companies, both large companies as well as startups, more in like a merchant relationship, like accepting payments, and not ever in like a technology enablement standpoint. And the, uh, at the time, we, Visa had a new CEO that had come in, and he really wanted to lean into some of the relationships with these large technology companies, as well as like the long tail of of at the time it was the, the word fintech was just being kind of bandied about for the first time, really. Uh, and so there was an appetite to do a lot more and engage more meaningfully with uh, companies that were pushing the envelope on technology. And so Visa since caught up significantly, but at the time it was really very new, and so. Um, I had, uh, they had just made an investment in a company called Square, which now is obviously a big public company, uh, more well known as Block, I guess, um, but started out as Square. Um, and I had, well, I was managing the relationship there. And um, that kind of evolved into more of an engagement with the startup scene. And at some point, you know, there was an appetite to actually like not just partner with these companies like we were doing with Square, um, which was actually very beneficial that both Visa and Square learned a lot and gained a lot through that relationship, um, and so we saw that as a model for like potentially doing more. And so I kind of raised my hand and said, hey, well, well what if we start up uh, an actual venture arm? And so that that was, thus Visa Ventures was born. They had done venture investing or like equity investing in the past, but never in kind of a programmatic, intentional fashion. And so that's what we did. We stood up Visa Ventures. I ran that for and kind of scaled it up into a global program over the course of about four years. Uh, and then uh, you know that was a great, great gig. I really enjoyed it. But I kind of had the itch to build again after that. Uh, And so I actually went back into the startup world uh, and then did that for another four years and uh, until M12 called and uh, it was just kind of too fascinating an opportunity to pass up. So here I am back in the venture world. But anyway, that's a very long-winded answer to your question of no, I've not always been in venture, but I kind of found my way way in accidentally.
1: No, it's great. I mean, it it shares the background, obviously, that you've been in the operator, um, you know, sort of role and, and have moved into venture. And obviously with some uh, very reputable uh, companies there, as you, as you mentioned, sort of like Visa uh, as well. And so M12 called, you answered their call, and now you're, you know, managing partner uh, at uh, M12. Um, for, for those who don't know, uh, what is M12?
0: Yeah, um, M12 is Microsoft's venture arm. So we are the venture capital group within Microsoft. Microsoft is our sole investor, uh, and we operate what I will call pseudo-independently. So we obviously have ties to Microsoft. Clearly, they give us our money and allow us to operate, which we're very grateful for. Um, but we also uh, have our own investment process. We have a team of investors. Uh, we've got uh, an investment committee that we uh, run deals through. And so we're allowed and able enabled to sort of make our own independent decisions that don't have to be... We don't require an executive or business sponsor to do a deal. Um, we don't require a commercial relationship with Microsoft necessarily. However, we look, uh, always look for ways to help accelerate outcomes for our portfolio companies. And so we, look, we have a connection back to Microsoft, and we have a very good relationship with Microsoft and, and executives and stakeholders across the organization. But we operate kind of looking into the future, so to speak, um, as one of our execs says, kind of helping to Microsoft to see around corners or see in the future. Um, We invest primarily uh, in series A and series B stage companies. We will look at anything from seed to C, but really A and B is our sweet spot. And we find that's an area where we're able to add the most value. Again, back to what I was saying a moment ago, we don't require any sort of relationship. We do what's what's in the best interest of the startup, but probably won't surprise you to learn a lot of companies uh, want a relationship with us because we do have uh, connections back into Microsoft and can help. You know, with go-to-market acceleration or product partnership or any number of different things. Again, whatever is most beneficial to the companies we invest in.
1: How big is the uh, the fund or like assets under management uh, at the moment? And what fund are you on?
0: Uh, so we have about a hundred companies in the portfolio, slightly over, I think, uh, active companies. Um, we've deployed uh, quite a bit of capital over the years. We don't really disclose like the annual fund size, um, but you know we're fortunate to have enough capital to deploy on an annual basis. We think of it kind of in. in Fiscal year vintages, so to speak. So our fiscal year ends in end of June. Um, so that's kind of how we measure vintage investments.
1: And uh, out of the hundred companies, um, maybe uh, of course not not all of them are uh, home runs and uh, you, you know the uh, the fund makers. Or and in this case, I don't know if you know if you consider them fund makers. But maybe what would be some of the notable uh, investments that that you've made and that people perhaps would know, or even if they don't know. Um, you know what? What are they? Why? Why were they uh, sort of notable as such?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, we have a so our entire portfolio is is online for those who want to peruse it and go a little deeper. Uh, M 12vc If you want to check us out online, we can also contact us there. Uh, I mean, we've had a we've been fortunate to invest in a number of companies uh, that have been you know done quite well. I think some recent investments that we've highlighted, um, you know, folks like Typeface, which is using AI for enterprise use cases to help enterprises create. Uh, content that matches the kind of the tone and voice and brand. Uh, you know, big, large brands care very much about how their products and brands are represented. Um, generative AI doesn't always, you know, uh, represent that perfectly, but Typeface is really focused on ensuring that uh, enterprises can use AI in a way that conforms to kind of the, the brand and, and company expectations for the enterprise. Um, in World is another uh, one that we did recently, they are on the gaming side. So they're using AI to power the sort of the brains of non-playing characters in games. So you can think of this as now all- allowing games to create almost like an infinite choose-your-own-adventure, right? Every time a gameplay potentially can be unique and different because every time you interact with uh, characters in the game, they can uh, generate reactions and, and responses that might be novel or net new each time. Um, using AI so those are a couple examples we've also had some exits along the way uh, Kahoot for example is one of our more successful historical portfolio that predated my arrival but um, you know that's one of the bigger exits we've had uh, and we've had a number of others uh, along the way
1: and uh, I, I think maybe you just mentioned there but you're like your last investment um, sort of just curious to learn a little bit more about you know the the process what does that look like and also then with the context let's say for for the listeners like how, how do you, uh, source opportunities, you, you know, in terms of like deal flow is, uh, you, you know, our companies coming to the M12 website, you know, submitting form, are you getting 5,000 emails a year or a month or, or whatever that is and have a team kind of going through that? How, how, how does M12 typically find a deal and then take that deal, you know, through, uh, to, to closure, you know, with the term sheets, um, and generally, also, how does how long does that take? I know it's not always, you know, roughly these could be sometimes quick, sometimes slow, but so it would be good to learn a little bit more about that process. Sure.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, our process is very similar to most financial VCs. A um, few, you know, some slight differences. Um, so we're a corporate VC, CVC, right? Because Microsoft is our parent LP or limited partner, i.e. investor. Um, and so, but we operate... I guess we are measured up both on financial returns as well as kind of strategic impact broadly. Um, And so the financial returns, self-explanatory, hopefully, but they also align interests with the companies that we invest in to make sure that we're investing in good standalone venture scale businesses. And then the strategic side, we never share information back with Microsoft without the express permission of our startups that we're very, I just want to make that very clear. That's very important to us um, to preserve kind of the, the privacy and the, you know, the, 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 or the trust that we, you know, build with our car, our companies, but we'll selectively do that to share it with them with their permission, you know. And again, a lot of them want the connection. So, to your question around process, I mean, I, you know, my view is a good deal can come from almost anywhere. Um, we have a combination of proactive outbound sourcing where we're looking at. We are thesis-driven investors, and so we invest in certain thesis areas, and so we look for companies in like thesis areas or subsectors that we think are interesting or potentially emerging or have good market opportunities so we will proactively hunt in those areas. We'll also get a lot of inbound, right? So warm intros are always welcome. Uh, you know, and you can also contact us directly via the website or, uh, any channel is fine my, on Twitter. My DMS are open and people ping me that way. So it comes through a variety of different sources. Um, and then, you know, we evaluate them. Uh, uh, it's perhaps no surprise in venture. You have to look at a lot of different, uh, a lot of companies to find the ones that I think are most interesting or most investable. And then typically we run our diligence process that consists of you know really understanding the company, the market. Uh, is this an opportunity that we think by itself is a good standalone venture scale business that can produce that type of venture returns? There are a lot of great businesses out there that might be uh, you know a solid business and spin off cash, but might not be venture scale. Uh, and so that's one of the questions we asked ourselves. And then we do look for alignment with just generally with Microsoft's kind of uh, areas of interest. Again, not a hard requirement for investment, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier about we look for ways to help and add value, right? And so, if we're looking for ways to accelerate outcomes for our companies, that is most likely going to happen in areas where Microsoft has an interest or is able to help in some way, connecting to Microsoft first party or our customers and partner ecosystem for co sale or or product integration. So. We look at that and we kind of create a fit score just as like an additional component to the overall process. And then, you know, companies come in to pitch our investment committee, uh, after which we typically make a decision. There might be some confirmatory or follow-up diligence. Uh, and then that's typically it. Um, so it's, it's, again, very mirrors uh, what a typical financial VC process is quite closely. Um, you know, there's a few other uh, diligence things we need to get through just being a corporate VC. But um, nothing too onerous, and uh, you know, typically not not very different than a lot of other financial VCs. Our timeline, you know, it, it varies. We've done some really fast deals, um, and also I, I like getting to know uh, founders before they're raising. Ideally, build a relationship, really understand the business, get that, and allow them to get to know us. Um, but we can, you know, we've done deals as fast as you know four weeks probably, start to finish, from first intro to, to wire. Um, I would say that's not typical. I would more, you know, six. Eight weeks, kind of from like first interaction to you know completion, but it, again, it, we can move quickly when when necessary.
1: And I'm just curious before we, we 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 get onto the topic of how AI will be used in the software industry. Like, how many deals do you look at per year versus you, how many do you actually do?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, there are various forms of looking at right. So we're screening. I mean, thousands. Right. We have a team of about twelve investors overall. Um, and So we're screening thousands of company a year, companies a year. Um, you know, from those we kind of do a, a, de- a double click on a subset of those. Right? I mean, it's 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 a funnel, right? So you've got a really wide t- top of funnel, and uh, the further along you get in the process, the fewer there are. We target about you know twenty to thirty investments a year, roughly. Um, and I would say you know, uh, so we're looking at you know orders of magnitude more than that um, every year, probably uh, you know hundred or more. Times that uh, that we screen and and review in some in some form um versus the ones we're actually investing in cool.
1: Uh, thanks for sharing that. so and, uh, and so obviously, I know you wanted to talk today uh, about obviously probably the the hottest topic uh, certainly last year and continues into this year. Maybe it will roll on into twenty five and twenty six, but how AI will be used in the software industry. So I know this is a. A topic that uh, certainly is going to be featured in, you know, uh, upcoming Um, SaaS.conferences. You know, it's really important right now. So really kind of keen to kind of hear your thoughts on on this.
0: Yeah, it is definitely the topic du jour, right? I mean, everyone's, everyone's, I feel like everyone's become an AI investor, whether or not they were before. (laughs) Um, M12 actually has a, a pretty good track record in this department. We've been investing in AI and AI enablement companies for quite some time, well before this latest type cycle, I might add. Um, uh, you know, so we, we have actually a number of companies in the portfolio that are either, you know, focused on core AI technologies or AI enabled software. Um, but to your point, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's changing the way the whole landscape is constructed and the way software gets built. Uh, and so I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it evolves. I mean, I think, I, I personally think we're still in the very early innings of how AI is going to transform software. Some fascinating stuff has happened in the last, I mean, I've been at, M12 a little over a year now, uh, and the world has has already shifted it, even in that time frame, right? So, um, it's it's kind of amazing to see. I think the you know there are certain things we look for in, in AI companies, and we're, I'm happy to elaborate. I mean, you know, it, um, we can have a conversation around it, but it's definitely changing. I think the dynamic of software get the way software gets built, the speed at which it can and can get built. There are a lot of amazing tools. I mean, GitHub obviously is. Is one uh, you know in the Microsoft ecosystem, uh, GitHub Copilot has been transformative. I think for developers, we've heard that from from them directly, um, and I think that's going to only going to continue in the way you know software both is gets built and as also like the notion of what software is. Can, it might potentially change as well.
1: So, so most SaaS companies that let's say that are being well, uh, let, let's start from the ones that are being born. You, you know, kind of uh, uh, from from now uh, onwards. Um using AI to help develop the platforms, you know, is something, do you think that's going to become like table stakes uh, for for all of those companies? And then also, will they all uh, need to have, you know, some ele- element of AI or be AI, uh, you know, SaaS companies? You know, is, is that the, the viewpoint? And then uh, I guess kind of the, the, the maybe the second part of this is, those well-established SaaS companies that already exist for many years, like, you know, the Slacks of this world, will they all also need to have some form of AI to kind of, you know, just kind of keep up with obviously where it seems that, you know, the software industry is going?
0: Yeah, these are great questions. So, uh, <laughs> and so there's a lot there. Um, I see AI a little bit like, you know, investing in AI is kind of like saying you invest in electricity. Uh really, I'm more focused on what's the application of the technology versus just saying I'm an AI investor. Like that to me doesn't c- mean a lot. It's really like, OK, to what end? Uh, and so I think in that vein, you know, similarly, in a similar way to how electricity modernized a whole range of things, everything from cars to power tools to you name it. Right. Um, I think AI is going to affect industries similarly right and it's not going to be the same across each industry it's going to be have a different take different forms in different ways um i think uh, there are going to be legacy industries that are going to adopt ai to solve problems in unique ways i think there's going to be a whole crop of companies that we haven't even begun to see yet i mean they're maybe just now starting to emerge that are ai native or are kind of adopting ai uh like from first principles. And I think you see this with every platform shift, frankly. Like if you look back to other platforms that have changed, right, the, the advent of the internet, uh, the advent of a mobile, right? The answer with mobile was not take a web page and just shoehorn it into a mobile device, right? And then now you have your mobile answer. Like that's not what it was, right? The answer clearly, as we know, since we've seen it play out, is look at the supercomputer you have in your pocket. Look at all the things that it gives you: accelerometers, sensors, you know, all these GPS, like all the different things that are baked into this thing natively. Now, what can I design? What kind of experience can I design around this? Right? And I think in a, very, in a similar way, we're going to see AI-native companies that are starting to build ex- software and experiences from that sort of reimagining it uh, with all the benefits and the, the things that AI gives you natively. And I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of really what that can fully do for us. But we're starting to see kind of like a little bit of a hybrid version of that where with traditional, like historical, like legacy software, and like adopting AI. But I think it's the earliest innings. Those are the things that I'm most excited about is like what net new experiences or net new possibilities are going to be created as a result of AI technology. And that's, you know, that I think the future is yet to be written. Um, back to your other question I, absolutely I think you know legacy industries incumbents as well as startups are going to adopt AI and I, I feel like if you're not at least thinking about what AI can do for you you're probably going to be you know at a disadvantage going forward that doesn't mean that everyone should just bolt on a co-pilot, right like that's not the answer um, uh, you, you really need to be thoughtful about what problems are you solving what opportunities are you addressing right I mean as with anything this is why I said like I like the electricity analogy because just Electrifying something by itself like isn't going to make it good. Uh, you know what is it? What does it do for you that's materially better or different, right? And so I think in a similar way, you have to think about that in so- with AI and software. Um, and I think there, you know, candidly, there are also a bunch of uh, legacy industries that have not yet fully even realized the uh, advantages of software, right? That are still need to be dragged into the future to a certain extent. Um, I mean, if you look at like financial services. I think it's less than 3% of all uh, financial institutions are spending more than 25% of their IT budget on anything cloud related, right? So like, think about that tiny, tiny sliver of of financial institutions that are even spending a quarter of their budget on something on the cloud, right? Like, and, and how much upside there is just for like modernizing their infrastructure, right? That is still in many cases running COBOL, right? So like, there's a whole bunch of stuff and like AI might actually be able to help rewrite some of that software right so maybe there are ways for it to like modernize legacy industries all kinds of different ways where ai might be useful but there's also some like old school like uh you know more traditional value to be added just through like pure software adoption or you know scale that is not yet being fully realized and ai may may end up accelerating that
1: with that example that you gave of like the three percent of of spend from the uh, you know the financial uh, industry where, where do you see that opportunity actually you, you know where where's the the opportunity there? Is it going to be fifty percent in ten years' time or ever will it ever be a hundred percent? you you know obviously it's so it's very low, and so the the opportunity is big there. but uh, where 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 do you see that going over a certain time span?
0: i mean i I, I definitely think there's a secular trend uh, towards cloud adoption and towards modernizing these infrastructure. In fact, that's an area that I'm very interested in investing in. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity to modernize uh, legacy infrastructure for financial services broadly. Obviously, I, you know I'm a bit biased because I have a, a background in fintech, um, but I think that's also true ac- across other industries. I mean, supply chain, manufacturing—like these are also industries that um, you know there's a lot of modernization and and uh, adoption of software that can happen in you know in situations where they're air gapped or like running on very legacy systems. So I think there's a lot of efficiencies that are still can still be derived and I think in many cases in some cases like AI will, or AI enabled software will just like leapfrog entire steps of that value chain, right? Um instead of just incrementally improving it, we might see uh, step function gains by AI enabled software that are uh you know b- being brought to bear in these legacy industries
1: do do you think uh I mean, this is just a a real time thought um uh that i just had obviously around the topic but uh w- with the uh, let's say the example of you know people's fear and, and maybe a very kind of real fear of robots taking our jobs and then uh, that creating you know more unemployment in the world because you know things are being uh automated and you, you know robots are coming into factories and and so on with AI, do you think that there is a case that AI might actually see like uh, or kill like a few or many you, you know uh, existing saAS companies because actually they're just doing a, a kind of better job um, that the product kind of already has and it kind of makes them um just really not not that important so could it, it could it potentially in some way slow the growth of saAS or do you see it actually as something that's really going to help the saAS market grow further?
0: This is a really interesting question, and I, I wish I had a crystal ball to to answer this for my own purposes. Um, I, it's 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 something that I think actually quite a bit about. Like, what will AI do to the overall software market? Right, will it expand it? Will will more gains accrue to a, a smaller set of winners? Um, you know, I think with every major technology shift we've seen throughout history, right? I mean, all the way back to, you know, introducing machines instead of human labor, right? Like there's always a a bit of a fear around it. And I don't want to look, I'm not trying to be glib or or Pollyannish here. I think I understand where some of these apprehensions come from, right? I get it completely, completely reasonable and understandable. Um, That being said, I think we've also seen with every major technology shift that there are, positive unintended consequences and unintended things that that we couldn't have imagined at the time that where life has improved right i mean i, I think it would be hard to argue that we should roll back the clock and go back you know uh, re- remove the internet remove the adoption of electricity like we go back to manual labor and fields like that that feels like the wrong direction right and so like along the way certainly there were some growing pains and some challenges that came with it i think AI, it's going to be no different with ai no one, I think, fully knows what that will look like in the future. But um, I think net-net, it's probably going to usher in a lot of very positive you know, changes and, and improvements in quality of life and efficiency, software, et cetera. Um, as to what it does for SaaS, it's a it's a really good question. I think there's an argument to be made that kind of vertical AI may supplant what we've called vertical SaaS, uh, where you have AI-enabled technologies, whether it's copilots or agents or some... Some version of that in the future that is more vertically focused. Um, you know, we think about kind of what are the core differentiators for AI-enabled software. I think data is a big one, distribution is another one, right? Dividends, like what what dividends, dividends is it paying you? Like what in other words, like what benefit or value are you deriving from it? Um and so I think those are, you know, in the areas where maybe there's a proprietary workflow or proprietary data set and solving a specific problem, you might have an AI enabled solution that addresses that in much the same way as vertical SaaS does today. Right. Uh I, I can imagine that future. Um and I, you know, I think it's it's also going to make probably writing software a lot easier. Right. It's going to be we're already seeing this with you know copilots and um no code or low code solutions that are powered by AI. So we might see a, a prolifer- pro- excuse me a proliferation of software being built even by non-technical people. And so in that sense, it might flood the market. But I think, again, it's going to come back to what value is being delivered. I think that's always going to be the case no matter what, right? What value are you delivering to the user? Why should someone care or adopt this? And those pieces of software or AI are probably going to rise to the top that are most useful for the widest set of users.
1: Awesome. Well, lots to think uh, uh, about there, um, about how AI is going to be used in the software industry. I want to move into the quickish fire round uh, now, Peter. Um, so, uh, uh, so what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career?
0: That is really, that's a good question. Um, I would say people giving me, taking a chance on me and giving me an opportunity. I think that has, um, a number of different times across my career. I've had folks that have, uh, enabled me to kind of really, shine or give me an opportunity to do something uh big or transformative and um you know like what i was talking about earlier with the visa ventures right like i sort of raised my hand i said i'm i know i'm passionate about this area i know this you know the intersection of these two worlds is something that's very interesting to me and they allowed me to run with it right and so i think like my career trajectory would have been very different had that not come to pass and i there were other examples in the you know before that even I, i started life as an actuary and I uh, was on a very traditional like actuarial science path, but had the good fortune to work with some people who were very forward-thinking. And I really wanted to... Uh, they We started a software uh, side project. And again, I raised my hand. I was like, I'm really passionate about this. I think this is really interesting. And they put me on the project and that became a company unto itself. And both that spin-out as well as the parent company were acquired by J.P. Morgan, right? So I think there there have been a number of... Uh, and I can give more examples like that, but it's it's those opportunities where maybe... I don't know if I was the most qualified individual at that, in that moment, you know, as an actuary, like going into the software world. Um, but they took a chance and it turned out very well. And I think that's, um, so I'm grateful to those folks who, who kind of were mentors and, or like helped me kind of rise to that next level.
1: What about, what's the best advice you've ever received?
0: Uh, you know, I think there's probably two pieces. One is being kind. I think just, uh, I don't never underestimate the value of just being nice to other people, <laughs> uh, playing the long game, uh, and, and, uh, you know, life is long, but it's also short and, uh, and you never know what other people are going through. So I think just treating people with kindness and, and thoughtfulness. And I think the other half of that is also just staying curious, right? Um, because life is long and you never know where it's going to take you, um, constantly being curious and, and really exploring the intersection of things. And that's, I mean, most of my life and career is due to like the intersection of different worlds. Even when I was studying, I was interdisciplinary because I liked, I think opportunity exists at those edges. And so remaining perpetually curious is probably uh, one of the, some of the best advice.
1: Big fan of both of those. Uh, what about, um, perhaps what is the biggest mistakes uh, or mistake that you've made and lesson learned, uh, within your career?
0: (laughs) Uh, you know, I think as I've gone along in my career, I've taken more risk. Uh, I mean, I started as an actuary, which historically is probably among the least risk, uh, probably the most one of the most risk averse careers you can have. And now I'm an venture, right? So um, maybe gone in the opposite direction. I would say um, I probably could have taken a little bit more risk earlier on in my career. Um, not that I didn't. It's just that I think you have it's easier to do when you're earlier on, and I think. Um, you know i've I've since seen the benefit of that, and like you know it's like what's the worst gonna happen right like uh you know uh, it, 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 like one of the things is like co- contemplating your own death or contemplating like if you play this out like if 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 all this goes to zero like what happens like you're still alive you know you can probably still find another job like you're you know, it's not the end of the world right and so uh, taking a little bit more risk earlier on probably would have been better um I had a chance to join uber uh, very, very early. I, I declined to do that, um, for, vari- for various reasons. And, uh, I'd probably be retired now had I gone that route, but you know, live and learn.
1: Well, yeah, I'm sure you would have had enough money to retire, but you're too young to retire. So you probably would have got bored. No,
0: you know? I'd, I'd yeah. still be doing something. I'm not going to hang on my spurs. Yeah. Until- <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Um, what about, uh, what's perhaps one of the hardest things about being a VC?
0: Uh, jeez, one of the hardest things I you know, I love this job because I get to talk to so many amazing, uh, interesting like uh, passionate people I think one of the hardest things is you look at a lot of different companies and you say no to a lot of stuff and I think um, it's hard because I I get you know for a lot of these folks this is like their life's work or they're pouring all of their everything into it right and um, especially when you get a little bit further down the path with an, uh, with an entrepreneur and you're evaluating a deal and taking a look at it and then you end up passing on it for whatever reason the math doesn't work out or you know, various other reasons that might lead to, to not declining to invest. That's hard for me. Uh, I mean, you, you know, I've, I've obviously been able you know, gotten better at it over the years, but it's just, um, trying to do that in a thoughtful way that's, that is still respectful, but also like, you know, I, there's a job that I have to do. Um, so staying true to that, but also being, trying to be respectful for the, to the entrepreneurs, sometimes a tightrope walk.
1: Have you a top tip for founders raising in this current climate?
0: Yeah, you know, I think the uh, old advice is new again. Um, you know, uh, focus on the value that's being delivered and really um understanding I think the climate has already decided this for a lot of founders. Like you can't just raise on momentum anymore. Um very much more focused on metrics and, you know, is there a real business here? Um so, you know, the market has already kind of spoken in that regard. I think they if if any founders haven't fully embraced that reality, I encourage you to do so, like now, um, because that is kind of the reality we're living in. Uh, and so I think you know being very thoughtful about the value that they're delivering and how to do the most with the leanest amount of resources. I'm, I've been very encouraged by the response overall by a lot of the founders we talked to. I think most have come to this realization, but I would say that that is um, that is one of the pe- core pieces of advice. I would also add, you know challenge it founders to think about like. I'm probably talking against my own self-interest here, but like think about how much money you actually need. Um, do you actually have a venture business? Are there other ways of funding this? You know, can you fund it through customer revenue, through some other, you know, creative financing? Um, and just be mindful of like how much you raise. Cause I think we've seen when, when money was free, people raised a lot of money, but they didn't didn't necessarily connect that back to the the core business metrics. And so I think that's, that's critical these days. It's table stakes
1: have you a, a favorite book about startups or investing, um, that you can share?
0: Oh, that's a good one. Um, I read, I, I I'll confess, I, i I read fewer books these days. I read, a, I read a ton, um, but, uh, less in the, in the book department, I think, um, uh, you know, the, the hard thing about hard things was, uh, is a good one uh, from Ben Horowitz. Um, that's, uh, you know, it's been said, I forget who said it, like, you know, being an entrepreneur is like, uh, chewing glass and staring into the abyss. And, uh, it's not far from the truth, to be honest, having been on the operating side. Um, but that, that's, a. I think that's an interesting book about really just embracing, kind of embracing the suck sometimes and really, you know, powering through. Um, the only way out is through as I've learned in life. And so, um,
1: yeah, <laughs> it's a good book. It's a, it's a very good book. Uh, what, what time do you start and finish work?
0: Uh, I, it's funny. I, I think my, my work kind of merges into life, which is, um, uh, I don't know if that's good or bad. I enjoy my work. And so, you know, for me, it's not the end of the world, but I, I balance that with, I've got so, uh, three young children. Um, and so I, I certainly, and they're very important to me and I want to spend a lot of, as much time with them as I can, but I also, um, you know, I'm working late, working early, you know, getting up at five sometimes <laughs> or four and doing work before they're up uh, or working late in the evening um, and obviously during the day. So it, var- it varies based on travel and, and ch- juggling child logistics. So I, w- I would say there's no defined start and end. Um, also, when you're chasing a deal, like deals happen on their own timeline. So you can't, uh, it's not about clocking in and out.
1: <laughs> um, fi- final one on the, on the quickest fire round. What do you do for your mental health and wellness, uh, if anything?
0: I love this question. Um, it's I like to get out into nature. Um, you know, we talked about cycling in the beginning. I think for me, that's very important. I I could probably be a bit a little bit better about sleeping more consistently, um, but I would say getting at, you know getting exercise, getting out into the, into the fresh air, and, and really into nature. I love hiking and, and cycling. Um, so that's uh, that's something I love to do.
1: So um, Peter, thank you for being a great guest on the podcast. Uh, I know your DMs are open. I know your DMs are open on Twitter, uh, but where, where can people find you online? What's the the best way if they want to kind of uh, reach out? They have any questions uh, and they want to contact you.
0: The the best way, I mean, you can certainly reach me on Twitter. I'm just Peter, uh, first name Peter at uh, at Peter on Twitter. Um, you can reach me that way. Uh, you can also reach me at uh, via the website uh, m12.bc, um, or you know, I'm just Peterberg at m12.bc. So if you want to send me a note um and uh yeah i'll welcome all uh you know startups we're uh we're actively investing and uh love talking to entrepreneurs so feel free to reach out
1: I, I did say that was the final question but i I'm just curious then on on that there are so many peters in this world i don't know how many but in, in the millions how How did you get at Peter? on on twitter or I, now i'm ads. an
0: early adopter that's uh yeah I, i've been on there for far too far longer than i care to admit but since the earliest days i mean since before TechCrunch wrote about it so uh, okay. i just t- tried the handle it was available and there you go um but yeah i have
1: very cool at peter super easy well uh thank you so much uh peterberg managing part of m12 really enjoyed the conversation I appreciate you coming on to the the podcast uh, and sharing with the sas doc uh, community so thank you so much peterberg
0: Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. I really enjoyed the
1: conversation. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming sasdoc conferences around the world. Wants exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS, Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at SaaStop.com.